Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter and I'm here today with Sharon Bessel. And on today's episode, a special episode reflecting on this week's federal budget here in Australia. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and is produced by Policy Forum. We offer a wide range of wonderful courses here at Crawford that look to tackle the big issues of our time with practical research-based solutions. So if you're passionate about creating and implementing good public policy, you can find out more about our courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study, and you can find on that website a great range of information. But on to today's special episode. Sharon, could you introduce our discussion for today? Hi, Anna Greta. I would love to. Um, It is nice to be back with you after our little spring break last week. And at the risk of shameless self-promotion, I just remind our listeners that um, while we weren't recording Policy Forum Pod last week, I did record an episode of Big Ideas for Anti-Poverty Week with Natalie Lewis and Keth Bartolo and Paul Barclay uh, facilitated that conversation. So if anyone's interested, you can find that on ABC's Big Ideas. But on to today, Anna Greta, this is, is a conversation I've, I've really been looking forward to. On Tuesday night, Treasurer Jim Chalmers delivered the federal budget, the first of the new government and his first as Treasurer. And we recorded this episode the day after the budget, while reflections were very fresh and immediate, and at times in our excitement we might refer to last night. Very early in the life of this new government, Treasurer Chalmers indicated his intention to move towards a well-being budget, an approach that's been adopted in a number of countries, including New Zealand, Scotland and Iceland, and closer to home, the ACT uses a well-being framework. While the former coalition government had ridiculed a wellbeing approach, many see its its transformative potential. And recently on the pod, we heard Catherine Trebek talk about what a wellbeing economy offers. It offers us the potential to put people and the planet at the centre of the decisions that we make, rather than profit and economic interests such as GDP, growth and debt. 
On Tuesday, the Treasurer pitched this budget as one of restraint in challenging times, as the country deals with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the threat of a global recession. He recognised the increasing cost of living, but also warned of hard times to come. Today on the pod, we're going to talk about what this budget means for Australians, what it means for our future possibilities, and whether it did have well-being at the centre. And to talk these issues through, we are delighted to be joined once again by our good friend, John Falzon. And today's episode is going to be very much a conversation between John, Anna Greta and I. John, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Sharon. Uh, My name is John Falzon. I'm Senior Fellow in Equality and Social Justice uh, with Progressive Think Tank Per Capita, and I join you from unceded Ngunnawal country. Thanks, John. It's it's great to have you with with us, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation about what the budget offered, what it provided, what pathway it puts puts us on, and perhaps we could begin just with some some brief initial impressions of the budget overall. Um, John, would you like to to lead off on what your your kind of high level view of of the budget was? Sure. Um, you know, you, you looked at the budget last night and you, you have to acknowledge um, some wonderful things. Cheaper childcare, uh, 26 weeks paid parental leave, funding for community services, health, aged care, the NDIS, a plan for affordable housing, uh, investing in the capacity of the APS, all excellent measures. But, but... There's something very wrong when to get us through a tough time, those who have the least are expected to do the most. Uh, There's something very wrong when those, especially those on income support and those on the lowest wages, are left to bear the biggest burden in carrying the inflationary can. Yeah, I think that's such a critical issue, John, and and. One that I think we'll come back to um, to talk about in a in a lot more detail in in just a moment. Anna Greta, what what did you think? Well, I think that there are, as John said, there's some great parts to the budget, and there are some more disappointing parts to the budget. And I think that we will flesh out uh, a number of the different issues that have been raised uh, through the conversation we're going to have today. I think structurally, um, and thinking about the narrative, uh, the narrative of government, the l- narrative around leadership. Um, that reflecting on the budgets we've had in the last few years might be a bit like thinking that the budget is a a TikTok video or it's like watching a magician pull something out of the hat. There was a lot of smoke and mirrors and quite often a real absence of substance. The sense I get from this budget is that it's a preamble. It's the introduction. Um, It's setting a framework in in quite a deliberate way uh, that that will, I hope, and I'm sure that for many of us, we we see yesterday's budget in a way that is part of an ongoing development, um, but that we may see things structurally change um, and that that what we got yesterday was was the table of contents, it was the introduction, it was the significant shift of course so that we can see the priorities shifting from this government toward some of the areas that have so badly needed attention. Look, you two have both done such a lovely job of, of summing up and I'm, I'm not sure I'll, I'll add a great deal more in terms of richness, but I, I do agree with what you say, Anna Greta. This, this felt like the beginning of what could be a 
transformative and very important process in this country. It does feel very much like the beginning, but perhaps that's what we would expect, um, given where we are, that it's it's October. It's not when we normally see a budget being handed down and we'll see another budget in May of next year. Um, so I did feel like this was very much scene setting. I must say I, I was reflecting back to a budget that left me feeling much less happy some years ago, and that was the 2014 budget, which now has become quite notorious in terms of how harsh and punitive it was. Um, and I guess I was thinking of that budget because I was recently doing an interview with a, a single mum living in, in really difficult cir- circumstances, in income poverty, facing um, homelessness. And she actually referred to to that budget and to the time um, around that budget and to then Treasurer Joe Hockey's comments about lifters and leaners. And what struck me was she still bared the scars of being called a leaner just because she needed some support. And the thing that really strikes me is that we're now seeing something very different. We're seeing inclusive language. We're seeing language of care. Um, and there are some big gaps, as John said, and I think we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but I do see this as a budget that gives us hope for a different way forward. Mm. So we are we're definitely sensing a, a narrative shift, I think, in the budget and we're seeing a change in framing. Um, and we know from the experiences of the last few years that, that we can't undo the damage and the trauma of the last decade overnight. And so patience may be required in terms of watching this evolve. Over the recent episodes, really since the election this year, on this podcast we've been talking about systems under stress. We've talked about environment and biodiversity, climate change, health, education, and at the heart of many of these discussions has been the problem of growing inequity. I'd love to hear from the two of you how you think this budget performs in terms of equity and social justice. Sharon, should we start with you? I I would say in terms of addressing poverty, which is the greatest issue of inequity that we face, the budget was was very light on. Well, the budget was essentially silent, I think it's it's fair to say. Um, and I think we might pick up on those issues in just a moment because I'd I'd like us to to go into depth about those issues of how the budget responded um, on on poverty. On Issues of equity and social justice more broadly, if we if we leave poverty aside, and of course it's hard to leave that aside when we're talking about inequity, I think there were some issues where the budget did very well. Um, I think on the women's budget statement, there were some really positive things. And that budget statement kind of led off by saying that gender inequality is holding Australia back. Um, there was a really clear acknowledgement of the need for us to address gender inequality in Australia, um, there was a real focus on the need to think about how we can make it safer and more possible for women and children to leave situations of domestic violence. Um, And there are some really good initiatives about long-term investments um, in housing for women and children who are fleeing domestic violence and also for older women who are at risk of homelessness. Um, and there's some money um, allocated, about $100 million allocated for crisis and transitional housing for those groups. So I think that was a real positive. Um, there were also some good things said around the gender pay gap. I think um, the extension or the expansion of paid parental leave is going to be very important in terms of, of gender equity. Um 
the other thing that I just pick up on is, um, Anna Greta, we've had a, a couple of episodes now looking at the education system and the stress and strain that the education system is under. And one of the things that I picked up on that for someone have been a, a small detail, but I think was actually really important, was the allocation of bursaries. I think it's about $160 million over eight years um, for students with an ATAR of 80 or above to undertake a teaching degree, and that's a bursary of about $10,000 a year. I think that's really important. I remember interviewing for one of the projects I'm, I'm currently doing teachers who had gone through the system in the 19, through the, the, the education system, the, the university system in the 1970s and 1980s, and they talked about the bursaries that existed then to encourage really talented students into teaching as a career. And I think it's really exciting to see us returning to something like that because I think that's an important part of beginning to address some of the inequities that we see in the education system. Um, so they're just a, a couple of things that really struck me in terms of the positives around equity and social justice. Um, I'll say more about poverty later, but, John, I'd love to hear your your impressions. In a, in a sense, um, well, you know, maybe this is wishful thinking, but I would like to think that we're coming out of um, that vicious period of neoliberalism uh, and you mentioned the 2014 budget, which was iconic uh, in typifying everything that neoliberalism uh, stood for. Um, and really the investment that's been flagged in, in this budget in social infrastructure is a really promising um, signal that um, you know there is a desire to dismantle some of that um, you know uh, absolutely um, uh, you know, unconscionable architecture um, that the neoliberal agenda gave us. Um, the two, the, the twin engine, if you like, of neoliberalism was the dismantling of social infrastructure, including the privatisation and commodification of parts of it, as well as the, the wanton destruction of institutional frameworks, particularly those that were predicated on, a, on an ethic of care, and the atomization of the working class especially through uh, the precarisation of the workforce, wage suppression, uh, attacks on collective organising and the pitting of sections of the working class against each other, particularly against um, the people who are not in paid work. Um, so, you know, in a sense, we, we've seen a, a wonderful start in uh, rebuilding that social infrastructure that has been systematically denuded and that's that's enormously important. Uh, the IR bill that um, will go go before the House on Thursday night um, will be an important step towards um, reintroducing some of some of the power that uh, workers should have uh, in terms of collective bargaining, thereby uh, enabling a lifting of wages. However. Um, for those who are not in paid work, uh, we continue to see no movement. And, uh, you know, that's something that is deeply concerning because of the incredible urgency uh, faced by the people who are, uh, you know, very much bearing the, the, the brunt of inequality. 
You know, there's something very wrong when prices and profits are treated as untouchable while income support payments and low wages are in real terms uh, treated as unchangeable. And, yes, it's true, you can't do everything in one budget. But right now, for the 3.3 million people living in poverty, we're not just talking about doing it tough. We're talking about a, a daily dose of anguish, a daily form of mental torture that cries out for immediate relief. And, you know, um, there there are so many of us fighting uh, on this front and I know that uh, no one's going to give up and uh, I'm very hopeful that uh, we'll get movement in that area. But, uh, you know, there was no sign of relief as far as lifting income support payments for for the people who are struggling to survive on on the lowest incomes in our society. John, as always, that is such a, a beautiful piece of analysis that you've given us. And I think, um, you know, the point that you make about perhaps the the slow but the purposeful dismantling of neoliberalism um, is something really important that we see potentially occurring through this budget. John, I remember when we spoke um, some some time ago, you made a comment that stayed in my mind that, uh, that one of the problems we have in this country is that we see housing as a speculative sport rather than a human right. And it does it did strike me, you know, when we think about social infrastructure very broadly, that that, that, that investment we're seeing being committed to housing suggests that we may be about to see a shift in terms of how we think about housing in this country and a return to a national commitment to ensuring that people are not homeless, that are not living in dire housing insecurity, and that housing does again become a human right. Um, but Anna Greta, what, what were your thoughts on, on kind of issues of equity and social justice within the budget? I have to say housing was the issue I was going to raise and I think that was where listening to the budget, uh, listening to Jim Chalmers to explain the budget to Parliament, uh, that I, I heard the passion and I thought I thought you could detect beneath the discussion of the housing accord some of these issues of the wellbeing framework or the interdependence that we've discussed on a number of occasions if we can increase housing availability, if we can change housing affordability, if we can ensure that all Australians have access to adequate and enjoyable housing and accommodation, um, that shifts the framework for health and wellbeing and it's an absolutely essential thing. I know there's been a lot of critique around whether the investment is sufficient, but I was struck that the, that the the accord, that whole of, of government, that having state government engagement and having superannuation groups and business groups involved in a dedicated commitment which is coordinated to change that landscape of housing. I, I, my daughter was watching the budget with me and said, oh, this is a bit boring. And I said, I think they've just potentially frame, changed the framework so that for you, accessing housing as you age will become potentially easier. So this is intergenerational thinking as well. It's We have a crisis right now and there are serious issues that need to be contended with. But it's also thinking about what the consequences of the housing approach that we have today is for our, our generations to come. Um, and so I, I did think I saw the, the, the glimmers of hope through that framework of the housing accord. 
Yeah, beautifully put, Anna Greta. I, I think that is really powerful. I think that Accord and also the the Housing Australia Future Fund are both really important. And, you know, as I said earlier, the the intention to ensure that the returns of, of that um, future fund will be redirected back to long-term housing for women and children fleeing violence is another example of very forward thinking and thinking that's that's likely to be quite transformational um, in addressing some of the real challenges that we have. But of course, last week was Anti-Poverty Week, as many of our, our listeners will, will know, and that focused attention on the extent of poverty in Australia. And that is something that's likely to deepen as the cost of living continues to escalate. John's already said we've we've got 3.3 million people in Australia living in poverty. Um, we have one in six children growing up in poverty in this incredibly wealthy country. John, you've already expressed very powerfully um, your disappointment that some of the that issues, particularly of income support for people who are not working, um, was not increased. What would you like to have seen done in the budget? What 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 changes would you like to have seen put in place? And what do you hope that comes? As I said, I know I know you can't do everything in in one budget. Um, a, a an increase, uh, particularly for the lowest income support payments, would have been a, a really strong and uh, supportive yeah, affirmation of the value of people who have been made to feel as if they are surplus to the needs of society. And, you know, we know that nothing could be further from the truth, but the fact remains that that's the way people are made to feel. Uh, you know, and as, as you said in your comments about the person you interviewed uh, apropos of uh, Joe Hockey's comments, you know, it's not just about uh, the financial uh, hardship. It's about that demonization, that degradation, that stigmatization, that feeling that you are less than. Um, and, you know, the, the, the income inadequacy is sort of, you know, becomes, um, symbolic of that rather than, um, you know, um, a standalone issue. So, um, you know, we really need to see some movement from government, uh, to say that, uh, you know, we are in your corner, we have your backs. And, um, you know, particularly in this period of inflation, uh, as I said earlier, it's the people on the lowest incomes who proportionately are bearing the greatest inflationary burden. You know, this, this is, you know, clearly, clearly profoundly unfair. I think we need to rethink what poverty means, to be honest, for, you know, even people who care about poverty, often uh, I think uh, we fall into the trap of seeing poverty as a state of existence, whereas in fact I, I would suggest poverty is, should be understood primarily as a power relation. Um, poverty is a, a form of disempowerment done to people. You know, it's not something, you know, often we conceptualise it as uh, like, like a, a hole that people fall into uh, and that we as a society maybe should be more attentive about filling the hole or, or that the individual uh, should have been more attentive about avoiding falling into the hole. Uh, you know, of course, there's a very strong narrative about blaming people for 
for uh, experiencing poverty. But I think we need to look at poverty as as a form of deliberate disempowerment. And you can't really talk about poverty, uh, therefore, without talking about the accumulation of wealth and how wealth is used, how our resources as a society are used. And that's why I go back to the fact that, you know, you can't think about the fact that um, income support payments and and wages for many people are low. You can't talk about that without acknowledging the fact that prices and profits appear to be unrestrained and untouchable. Yes, absolutely, John. I again, incredibly powerful comments. Anna Greta, what are your thoughts on on? the extent to which the budget reached those who, who are experiencing greatest hardship and, and what you might have liked to see out of it? Look, I think we saw during the, the 2020 period where there was um, a dignified wage for people who are living um, or particularly requiring government assistance for income, uh, that we we saw the extraordinary power of providing people with a dignified uh, amount of money. And what I, whenever I use that uh, statistic, that extremely dire statistic of one in six children in Australia living in income poverty. I think as a cardiologist about their increased risk of lifetime chronic disease. Um, I know that the experience that they have through childhood it will, will resonate then through the rest of their lives. And we know because we saw it in 2020 that these are decisions that we can make quite differently. And so I, I think there's a lot of disappointment around uh, the failure to address the safety net for society and that income redistribution which might be required. And so the glimmers of hope come from the shift into the wellbeing uh, framework. And, and again, it wasn't particularly a strong part of yesterday's discussion, uh, but if we're beginning to work that into our budgetary system, we might find that the decision-making around social security changes because there are such extraordinary benefits for the whole of society by providing everyone with a living wage. But Sharon, I'm not at all expert in this. You are. Could you tell us your thoughts on, on the government's approach to poverty? I don't know, Anna Greta, what you just said sounded pretty expert to me. Um, and, and I w- would largely agree with, with, well, I would completely agree with, with what you and, and John have just said. I, I guess the one thing that I would add to that is, Anna Greta, you, you pointed to that incredibly powerful natural experiment, for want of a better way of describing it, that we had in 2020 when we saw that we could lift people out of poverty. And I'd also take us back even further. You know, we sometimes now hear the odd cynical comment about Bob Hawke saying no child need live in poverty by 1990. What's often missing when that quote is is trotted out is the fact that the Hawke-Keating government did actually do an enormous amount um, to reduce child poverty over a period from the mid-1980s right through into the early 2000s and set in place a whole range of policies that supported families to ensure that they could cope with the cost of living, that they had housing, and that they could support their children. And we saw rates of child poverty drop over a period of time and then begin to increase again from around 2003. And at the same time, we saw increasingly punitive language being used and we saw increasingly harsh measures being used 
against some groups, particularly single parents who are usually single mums. So we know from that experience that allowing many people to live in poverty is a policy choice. We make decisions about what we're prepared to support and who we're prepared to support. Um, And I think, as, as John said, those choices lead to the powerlessness and, and, and the marginalisation of some. And they lead to incredible shame and stigma because people are being told that they are in some way deficit, that they are to blame for things that are completely out of their control. Um, and I just add to it that we're, we're in the work that we're doing around child poverty, we're looking at child poverty as multidimensional, as being about material deprivation, which involves a lack of income, and other basic needs like housing and food. But we also see poverty as opportunity deprivation, where children don't get to contribute or don't get to participate in activities that are meaningful to them and that contribute to their, their sense of citizenship, their sense of involvement, and to their ongoing development. And importantly, we also see multidimensional poverty as having a relational dimension. And we see this as the social and economic structures and systems that fail to support strong and supportive relationships for children. And this is really important because a lot of the policy choices that we've seen over the past couple of decades now have put such pressure onto families experiencing poverty that they've eroded the relationships between children and their parents. And I think this is something that we have to turn around. So for me, we need to do a couple of things urgently. We do need to raise the rate of income support. We've started to in this budget to look at increasing how minimum wage can be increased, and that's important. But we have to increase income support um, if we are going to lift people out of poverty. And we have to end the kind of punitive conditionality that blames people for their own poverty when it is completely beyond their control and erodes relationships by telling people that society thinks they're worthless. So we need some practical measures and we also need a change of narrative. The practical measures weren't forthcoming in this budget, but I get the sense that the change of attitude is emerging And that, I think, will really matter. But we need to also have the practical measures because children who are hungry now can't wait for three or four years. Well said. Sharon, we might take a really brief break there and perhaps while we're having a really brief break, uh, our listeners might like to consider what a child-centred budget looks like um, and just how different decisions might come if we're thinking about the intergenerational impacts. We'll be back in just a few moments. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back to our Policy Forum pod post-budget conversation with John Falzon. This week's federal budget touched on a number of issues that were close to my heart, and there are a few that we've already talked about that, that are tremendously important. But in my work as a physician and in my thinking as the Human Futures Fellow, there were two particular issues that really did stand out. Firstly, climate change. This budget has taken climate change seriously. We've seen a significant shift in framing within the budget. We see serious investment in climate mitigation and particularly through an energy transition towards renewable energy and investment in the energy system that may help us into the future. But there is also good acknowledgement of the challenge of climate change and the need for adaptation that goes alongside that with an acknowledgement of the likely costs involved with an increase in extreme weather events over the coming decades. In my own area, the Department of Health has now been committed to a health and climate change strategy and investing real money into this alongside the development of a sustainable healthcare unit. This has been more than a decade's worth of advocacy in the healthcare sector and it's fabulous to see these things achieved. But the other issue is one that perhaps we began to touch on as we discussed children in poverty and that is intergenerational justice and thinking deliberately and overtly beyond a budget cycle and beyond the, even the election cycle beyond that. I'd love to hear your thoughts, John. Could we start with you? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I completely concur that it's just um, really refreshing to see. It's, it's refreshing to see government saying it is our job to not only think about but to do something about the things that affect all of us and that collectively we need to approach uh, these these multiple crises that are upon us. Uh, that's an enormous, you know, that, that shift cannot be underestimated and both of you have alluded to that um, uh, during this conversation. Um, you know, the very fact that we're talking about well-being, that we're framing a budget in terms of well-being, even though this is a, a modest first step in that direction, is a huge departure from uh, the previous government, uh, which you know really, you know, if, if you wanted to describe uh, the the framing, it was very much you know you're on your own, uh, you know, if, if you have a go, you get a go, uh, which was you know a, a, a absolute nonsense. Um, just an excuse for individualism uh, of, of the worst kind, the kind that um, that glorifies uh, in inequality and um, makes a virtue out of exploitation and exclusion. So climate justice is, of course, central to any notion of collective well-being, as is uh, intergenerational justice. Uh, you know, you, you can't have well-being without thinking about the future and thinking about the, the climate emergency that is upon us. Um, but, you know, uh, you know I, I'm, still, I'm still deeply concerned that, you know, we, we can't talk about well-being while excluding those who are confronted with that impossible task 
of living on $46 a day. And I acknowledge that these payments will be indexed for inflation, but in real terms, that changes nothing. You know, you can't talk about well-being while leaving people in poverty right now. And so, you know, we need to do both. We need to build uh, that new architecture of fairness and that will take time. You know, you can't change an entire system overnight. Um, but at the same time, there are some immediate crises that need to be attended to. And, uh, you know, I, I, there, there are some things that can be done and, you know, as you have both said, it, it's not a matter of the inability to do them. It, it's, it boils down to political will. Yeah, I think on on climate change, it struck me that key issues were much more, um, if not front and centre, at least woven throughout the budget than they have been in the past. And their commitment to renewables, I think, is is so incredibly important. When I I hear you talking, John, you know, one of the things that that strikes me too is the way in which issues around poverty and people's right to a decent standard of living and a secure standard of living and climate change are, are so interwoven. You know, I I came back um, just three or four, three weeks ago from doing some research in the Shepparton area with children who were living in, in dire poverty. A number of them were experiencing homelessness and they talked about just how incredibly difficult their lives were. You know, these were the, the very hungry children that we've talked about before on this show despite their parents' very best efforts. And, of course, now that whole area is is underwater and I know a number of the families that we worked with have lost everything, have lost what little they had. And so when we think about the way in which climate change impacts through these extreme weather events, of course, it's the people who have least who are hit most and least able to recover. So we need to see the way that those issues are interwoven and a wellbeing budget, if that is the direction we continue to move in, in requires us to do that, to see those, those interconnections. But I think, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about intergenerational justice, we, we cannot avert our eyes from the long term and the need to address climate change. The fact that we can even mention it um, in serious ways in budgets now, I think, is an important step forward. And can I just add, as you were talking, um, you just made me think of something that um, what, what I often see, uh, what I hear is in, in the face of the, of the climate emergency, when, particularly when young people see uh, older people, uh, particularly people in government, uh, not doing anything and, and you know, creating a sense of, well, there, there is nothing that can be done and nothing that will be done. The, the really worrying thing that goes with that uh, is this inculcation of a sense of hopelessness and that doesn't just restrict itself to the climate emergency. Uh, there's an incredible knock-on effect where, you know, young people can be forgiven for feeling a sense of, well, you know, what's the point of anything um, if if our planet is just, um, you know, on this 
in this path to destruction that no one is caring enough to avert. Now, you know, that, that's enormously deleterious to people's uh, well-being, to all of our, our well-being um, on that emotional, that spiritual level. Um, and so, you know, we need to take concrete steps uh, in all of these areas, even modest steps, but concrete steps that not only address these issues but give us all a sense of hope that creates a momentum to to not only realise that change can happen, but the way change happens uh, can in itself change, the sort of change of the change, you know, uh, the, the fact that the direction of change can be radically altered and it can be altered not from above but from below by by the collective actions of people under those guiding stars of struggle and hope. John, I, I think that is, is so true. And I think of the action that young people and children are taking around climate emergency and the school strikes and the protests that we've seen. And the not just the desire but the demand from young people that those who are in power and those who are able to make decisions take these issues more seriously and and try to secure the future uh, for young people for all of us and i think it's shameful as an adult <laughs> to see young people protesting and taking action but also calling out for help for their future, calling out for the hope that you talk about, and then adults in decision-making positions essentially casting that cry for help aside. Um, so I, I think what you say about the importance of, of the bottom-up movement and the demand for change is so important, and I think we can look to young people and children who are giving us a way forward, you know, and and yeah. showing us the way to that kind of grassroots bottom-up movement as we demand for greater attention to be paid to the climate emergency that we're seeing playing out in Australia day after day. Anna Greta, I'm, I'm sure you've got some some things to add on this. You you are so focused in in thinking deeply about these issues, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, on those issues that we're talking about, about climate emergency, but but also perhaps to go back to some of the issues around health that were in um, the budget. There are a number of measures, and we've talked, you know, in really distressing terms on the pod recently about the crisis that the healthcare system is under. What was your takeaway on on those issues around perhaps the connection between climate change and health, but also about health specifically? Look, just firstly, the the importance of language, and the two of you have um, have done a superb job of articulating that. Being able to say the words climate change, um, and for that to be taken seriously, for that to be built in, for there to be a department that involves climate change. Um, you know, one of the scariest things about the last decade was has been has been both what's happened now, so the immediate impacts of the changing climate, as well as understanding those climate projections, and not being able even able to say the words in some government policy circles. And so, the power of that language shift is is really extraordinarily important. It's a foundation on which I know we build. 
And foundation building, I think, is how I looked at the health side of the budget. When I think about the health interventions, when I'm looking at the at the budget approach or the, the federal financial uh, approach, it's actually across the whole of budget where we will see health impacts. So the housing policy gets my attention because we know that makes a difference when people have access to adequate housing and secure housing. You know, housing insecurity increases the likelihood of chronic disease. And so we improve population well-being through housing. We improve population well-being through addressing climate change, through proactively planning with communities and becoming prepared for the sorts of events that we know will come. That idea that the unprecedented event is not something we can't prepare for, that we, we really can prepare for a future that is changing. But from a practical perspective for the Department of Health, as I mentioned already, I was so pleased to see investment into climate change and health work and into this healthcare sustainability. But more than that, I managed to attend a short amount of Mark Butler's discussion with the the Secretary after the budget came down. And I'm impressed that the Department of Health recognised the sorts of structural problems that have come up in all of those conversations we've had about the healthcare sector. Um, and the investment that's been put forward in this budget is into primary healthcare, which is the backbone of our health service, providing good quality access to primary care, to preventative care. That should be where the focus of our health budget is. And it's remarkable to see reinvestment in that area. Similarly, investing in people who care, so investing in our aged care workforce, investing in our nursing workforce and our allied healthcare workforce and thinking very much about that structure of caring that we know is fundamental to a good health and aged care service. So I was impressed by the reframing away from perhaps giving small pockets of money to to various groups there's a structural thinking which I think is tremendously important um, and inspires me for the future. Anna Greta, th- those comments lead beautifully into to something that, that I wanted to raise. Um, one of the things that we've talked about a lot on the pod is the need to change the narrative and the potential of a wellbeing approach or at least beginning to talk about wellbeing to do that. I'm, I'm really curious to hear what each of you have to say about whether we're we're seeing a shift in the narrative and how important this week's budget is in in bringing about that shift. Um, Anna Greta, what are what are your thoughts? Are we seeing a shift overall? Oh, look, I'm 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 not always optimistic, but I am going to be optimistic. I, I was I was so looking forward to well-being being put put all over this document. Yes, um, this week with Jim, Jim Chalmers' uh, speech, and it wasn't there, but it is there. And so, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I think what we're seeing is a is a reframing. The book is rewritten, and this is the introduction. And so. The idea that all of the subsequent budgets will reflect a well-being framework, um, that inspires me with hope because it's difficult to allow entrenched poverty to continue in Australia and particularly the idea that that gets worse would be extremely difficult to measure against a well-being metric and 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 to sell. Um and I suspect that the caution that they are employing in terms of the way to bring this in 
is politically sensible, that we bring people on a journey rather than dragging people from one framework to the next, that inspiring them to see the benefits of thinking more broadly and the wellbeing framework allows us to think, of course, across the whole of government and the whole of system. Um, and, and I think that that is in this budget. So I, I do think the narrative is nudged. It's more than just nudged. It's actually reset. And that the hope I, I think we will see in the budget early next year. John, what were your thoughts? Yeah, very much uh, the same. Um, you know, two really interesting things happening in a very nascent form. Uh, one is, I suppose, you know, making people think um, about the question, you know, that uh, as to what is the role of government. Uh, you know, governments must do what markets cannot, and in a very, as you say, gentle, uh, cautious way in order to bring people along uh, with them on that journey. A number of the announcements are very much about quite modestly saying government has an important role to play uh, in intervening in market mechanisms and playing a leading role in in, um, setting the structures, uh, you know, changing the way we view certain things, taking a step towards decommodifying them uh, in some ways. So, you know, that's a really important step along the journey out of neoliberalism uh, towards the kind of society where not only are we politically democratised but socially and economically democratised. The other thing, of course, uh, that's, uh, that goes with it is the whole question, and, uh, and uh, you know, Jim Chalmers has flagged indeed that we need to have a national conversation about what we can afford and, of course, what goes with that is the question of how we raise the revenue uh, to, uh, to pay for what we need. And so I think, you know, the, on the horizon, uh, you know, the need for us to talk about taxation in a mature way and to say, well, you know, everything has a price. And, uh, you know, you either are forced at one extreme to uh, to pay for it individually, you know, a complete user pay system, whether it's health or education, uh, you know, aged care, uh, whatever the case may be, or um, you take a, a hybrid or a, a approach that leans towards more of a collective socialised attitude to essentials so that together we pay um, into a pool so that everyone has access to those essentials of life, particularly a place to live, um, you know, a, a place to learn, a place to heal, and, and of course, the role of government in ensuring that everyone um, has a place to work with dignity, with good conditions, safe, um, and, uh, and, you know, away from that um, uh, institutionalised precarity that became part of the neoliberal frame. Mm, great framework. And Sharon, your thoughts on wellbeing? Thanks, Andy Greta. Look, I, as I'm listening to, to, to you and, and John talk and reflecting on, you know, the, the past several weeks as we've thought about what this, this budget might offer, I must say I've been on a bit of an emotional roller coaster 
Um, the thought that we would be moving towards a wellbeing budget, I got wildly excited about. I mean, this seems to be something that offers a promise of hope for the future, that genuinely offers us a pathway to greater social justice, to greater equity, to genuinely caring about people and about our planet. When the budget came down last night, I realised that I'd set my expectations just a tad too high and I initially felt very disappointed. This morning I went through and tried to count the number of references to wellbeing in the budget and thought, oh, it's not enough. Um, a, a, a slightly crazy way of thinking about the budget, I must say, but as I said, it's been an emotional roller coaster. But I just wanted to point out that the statement four that's in the budget that talks about measuring what matters, and I think this is really critically important in terms of shifting the narrative. And there's a comment in there that, that explicitly says, traditional macroeconomic indicators provide important insights but are not a complete or holistic view of the community's well-being. A broader range of social and environmental factors need to be considered to broaden the conversation about quality of life. And to me, there we have it. There is the signal that we are likely to be on a very important journey. Um, and that come May next year, that come future budgets, we're likely to see much more transformative measures being taken to really secure people's well-being. And I think that's so important. The one thing that I that I would add is, is Anna Greta, I think you said this is about bringing people on a journey. And I think there are two, two groups within that journey that we really need to pay some attention to. And one is the opposition. You know, we have a tradition in Australia that has become, I think, even more entrenched in recent decades, of oppositions being oppositionalist for the sake of opposition. And I think it would be a tragedy if this potential for transformation is stymied due to party politics and political parties putting their own interests ahead of the interests of the nation. So I would make an explicit call here on the opposition to think about the future of the country rather than politics in the way they respond to the possibility of a wellbeing budget. I would make the same call of the media because I think one of the problems that we have in Australia is the narrative that is created and recreated by some parts of the media. And that's a narrative that sees a neoliberal paradigm as delivering for all, which we know it doesn't. It's a narrative that privileges some parts of the community and privileges the powerful and privileges profit. And it's a narrative that has continually spoken against those who are in greatest need. So I think within parts of the media, we need some really deep self-reflection about how this transformative vision can be supported. And I think it's the onus also falls to members of the public you know, to, to us collectively to say, what do we want this country to be? If we want it to be a place where the powerful can reign with, without consideration of those who may be doing it hard, if we are prepared to see hope lost, if we were prepared to privilege profit over all else, then over the past decade, we've seen the recipe for that. But if we want a society that genuinely values people and the planet and our well-being, then maybe we're seeing the beginnings of a roadmap and we need to speak out loudly and say, we support this. 
could not agree more. And so I know we're going to need to wrap up this conversation again as the three of us come together. I think we could probably talk for many hours about this, uh, but such a powerful series of thoughts about the budget that you've just offered, Sharon. My thoughts, I'm going to echo you just briefly, which is to inspire people in their conversations day to day in with friends, with colleagues, in work environment, and in the work that so many of us do, diverse places in diverse settings around the entire nation, that for each one of us to build these metrics in, to be thinking about economics through that prism of the social and the environmental con- uh, consequences, Nothing bad happens when we start to think like that. It, it makes for a rich conversation. It adds to meaning for the work that we do. And it's a remarkable framework, I think, moving forward. John, as our guest, can I offer you the last word? Where do we go from here? <laughs> You're very kind. What I, what I believe is we're, we're coming out of a period of uh, incredible cynicism about politics per se. And really, it's not just about politicians, it's about the very notion of democracy. And that's deeply troubling and deeply dangerous. Uh, We need to, if anything, expand and celebrate uh, what democracy means, not just in the parliament, but in our lives, in our society, in our economy, so that we are able to determine uh, what the future looks like and uh, you know, what collectively will be the quality of our lives and, and um, for the lives of, uh, of the next generation. Um, the Italian uh, theorist uh, Franco Berardi um, once wrote that mass cynicism results from a loss of social solidarity. And if anything, the next step is, you know, we've got to not just look at what government is doing, we have to build that social solidarity. We have to rebuild that social solidarity because if you look back in history, it is only when there has been that strong sense of collective social solidarity that we have achieved sustainable social change all of the great social changes uh, have have come from an expression of that, of that social solidarity. It's as if the period of neoliberalism has, you know, it's been so crushing. It's as if we have lost our collective soul and our job now is to retrieve it and that's a collective task. Uh, you know, uh, we, we can do that. And, uh, and that's what we must do, not just uh, by, as I say, looking at what government's next steps are, but creating the momentum that gives permission and in some ways uh, forces the hand of government to, uh, to go down that path of uh, really creating a space so that um, you know, the ethic of care uh, is given primacy care for each other, care for our planet, care for ourselves. John, that's so incredibly powerful. That's a beautiful way to end this conversation. I think that idea of reclaiming our collective soul and putting care at the very centre is so fundamentally important. And, of course, as we do that, we have to ensure that we bring everyone along and that those who are doing it toughest are always 
at the centre of the care that we provide. I have absolutely loved this conversation. I hope that our listeners enjoy it as well. John and Anna Greta, thank you so much for your insights and your wisdom and for the hope that I think has been woven throughout this conversation. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Anna Greta. Uh, great pr- pleasure and privilege to, uh, to speak with you both. Sharon, that was such an inspiring conversation. I could have listened to the two of you talk for a lot longer. What were your thoughts on our conversation today? Oh, Anna Greta, I, I always enjoy having John on the pod. It's it's always such a pleasure to listen to his wisdom. And at the risk of sounding like a mutual admiration society, um, it's always wonderful to hear your reflections on, on these important issues. Um, the first thing that, that I would say in reflection is that it really struck me on Tuesday when we heard the Treasurer talk about the budget, when we heard his budget speech and then saw him being interviewed, um, was the sincerity with which he spoke. And there was such a sense of both competence and compassion in the way he talked about the budget. And I just thought that was so important in terms of the framing and delivery. Of course, as we discussed today, where compassion was perhaps a bit lacking was in terms of really directly addressing poverty and taking on the challenge of reforming some issues around the social security system and increasing the the rate of working age benefits and particularly new start and single parent benefits. So I think that's a gap. Um, we've spoken about that. I think that's something that the government really does have to address in the short term if a wellbeing budget is going to be meaningful. But more broadly, I think the shift that we heard is just so fundamentally important. We covered a lot of territory in in this conversation, Anna Greta. There are a couple of things that we missed. You know, are there things that 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 you think we need to perhaps pick up on in future episodes? Yeah, look, there's there's always so much to talk about when we're looking at a whole of government approach. Um, coming back to the first discussion we had around equity, we've seen frame shifts, I think, in how we look at uh, gender equity, particularly women and their capacity to access uh, good work conditions and the changes in childcare um, make a big difference in that area. We've seen a frame shift in housing and that will resonate, I would hope, into change, re- reframing equity. And we've also seen that change discussion around violence and addressing particularly violence against women. But it also strikes me there's a marked frame shift in terms of uh, First Nations justice. And it was through the budget uh, issues addressing the First Nation voice, making sure that the first the voice to Parliament and the Uluru Statement is adequately resourced, that that conversation is one in which as many people in the, the Australian population can engage, uh, and that that Indigenous voice is foremost in that discussion. But we saw it through the entire budget, and, and I think that will warrant further attention down the track um, when is something certainly we should give more than one episode to in the future. Uh, other things, NDIS, extraordinarily complex region of government and obviously a growing area of expenditure um, and complex territory. This government understands the NDIS system um, and the way in which they're resourcing it reflects that understanding. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to unpack that in some more detail with an expert in the area. Sharon, what have I missed? Look, to me, Anna Greta, they, they were the two big things that, that we missed. Um, of course, there was, was a lot in the budget around paid parental leave um, that we didn't talk about. That's a, an incredibly important issue. But I agree with you. I think on 
issues of First Nations justice and NDIS, we need to come back to them with some experts um, in future episodes. But for now, I, I think we leave this conversation with, as John said, the possibility that we may be reclaiming our collective soul, um, real possibility for hope for the future. And, and and perhaps we are on that transformative pathway that, that you and I have talked about so much in the past. And perhaps we are approaching a situation where we really do see value placed on care and care being placed at the centre. So lots more to talk about in the future, Anna Greta, but a fabulous conversation today. We really hope that the listeners have enjoyed it as much as we have. We'll leave a link in the the show notes to any publications that we've talked about, a couple of links to, to key budget documents. As you know, we love hearing from our audience, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. Send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net or join us on our Facebook page. We'll be back with more next week. From me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.